Spoken Word, half an hour of poetry and performance, your connection to Melbourne's grassroots poetry scene, the voice of those of us who have nothing but our voices. Welcome to the Spoken Word Show on 3CR Community Radio. My name is Brendan Bonsack. 3CR broadcasts from Wurundjeri land, part of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty has never been ceded and no treaty exists. We pay our respects to elders past, present and into the future. Our guest today on the show is Charlotte Sereno Raymond, well known to many in the spoken word community and about to premiere a one-night-only show in the Melbourne Fringe. This show is called The Melanin Monologues, Untold Stories of the South Asian Community. The show is a blend of spoken word poetry, storytelling and music drawing on interviews that Charlotte has conducted with 100 South Asian individuals of all genders, sexualities and abilities. How to drape a sari. Step one. Grab the largest piece of cloth you can find. Make sure it is colourful. You are always colourful. Parade the yellow mustard dal, coconut sambal as fringing. Flavours like these make colours like you easier to digest. Step two. Stand tall and fold the fabric into straight pleats. Stay in line. Your father's family had to prove their percentage of European heritage to come to this country, so stay in line. The white Australia policy had ended, but the white language policy lives on. Stay in line. It is unspoken. My father sounds of British articulation from drinking colonised cups of tea. Stay in line. My father's family is always proving his loyalty to here. Stay in line. Immigrants are always proving their loyalty to here. Step three. Drip the fabric at your navel. Your stomach churns at the guilt of your privilege. You hold this. Your purebred Lunkin friend tells you you are not Lunkin in her eyes, that this technically Eurasian blend is hard for her to comprehend, but the compilation of Scottish, Portuguese, Dutch and Swiss traces so far back it does not register in this, so let me drape the layers of my lineage around me and know that this belly could carry babies, whom are rightfully Lunken also. Drink down these declarations like Dal. Step four. If ever you figure out those goddamn pleats, drip the palu over your shoulder. Wear it like a sash, feel it like a blanket that cradles you home. You will not wear it often, but when you do, it will remind you of when you climb Sigiriorok. So the Perihara parade in Kandy when the locals at Tehivala Zoo saw your blue hair and took photos of you. The man in the mountain recognises your family name. Tells you he knows your grandfather, you smile. You may never learn to correctly drape a sari, but these colours and this culture will always flow through you. Thank you. How long is it since you've worn a sari? I 
think I tried to wear one for a friend's birthday, maybe three years ago. I'm going to try and wear one for the show and drape it during. So we're all just like, does anyone know how to do this properly? And we're all like, no. So I'm going to have it pre-pleated because that's the hardest bit. Um, but when I tried to do it myself, I was watching videos. I'm like, this is terrible, but I'm going to try and do it. So, yeah, it's been a while. So your show. Yeah. So it's part of the Fringe. It's actually at the Melbourne Fringe Hub, which is really exciting, um, which is at the Trades Hall this year. So that's really nice. What was the inspiration for it? Um, so I think one of the inspirations for it is when this year, when the Easter Sunday um, bombings happened in Sri Lanka, a lot of people who, like myself, identified as third culture kids were like, how do we process all of this? And then people from Sri Lanka were having these similar conversations. And it was kind of a moment where I wanted to recognise that there were a lot of untold stories, a lot of untold grieving and just small things that we don't realise we connect on and stories we don't feel as though we've told. And I wanted to use artistic spaces I'd been in to kind of work with that. And also, I also have developed a stronger interest in working with accessibility and making sure the work I create is accessible. So that also allowed me to work with that platform. The story kind of breaks up into um, different sections. So I did a bunch of interviews with a bunch of people, about 100 or so. Um, and they kind of then sorted those interviews based on the types of questions into things like um, feelings of diaspora, microaggressions, how to talk about relationships and whether you do or don't with your family, um, decolonizing queerness, um, just understanding languages and those small kind of ways you connect. So it's all kind of broken up within that show. So you interviewed lots of people. How yeah. did you source those people? So a lot of them, first it was by word of mouth, the people that I kind of knew who identified um, as South Asian and then it was kind of through networks and I had a Google form for people to fill out as well. If just like if you prefer an in-person interview, if someone was on the other side of the world, they could still do that. So it was kind of sharing it through networks um, I was a part of and then going beyond that. I think because I set myself up for the mammoth task of 100 people, no one like said I should do that and I'm just like why am I doing this many interviews but I think it was so I could get like a diverse range of stories because I recognized my story wasn't the only one and there would be things in there that I wouldn't um, recognize as part of my identity and I wanted to showcase that Um, and also knowing that the identity of South Asian people can be so diverse from someone who speaks like six languages and multiple dialects to someone like myself, who didn't grow up speaking the language um, of the country their parents were from. My dad's from Sri Lanka, and so he grew up in Colombo, which is like the capital city, but he came to Australia with his family when he was 10. So it's only as he got older that he started learning the language, and I've since been back to kind of understand the culture more and just kind of wanting to see the place. And my mum's from the Philippines and speaks like five languages. Wow. Where did they meet? They were pen pals. (laughs) <laughs> the pen pals in what in the eighties in the eighties, yeah. so that's how they met. So my dad was living in Australia, my mum was in the Philippines, and they got married in the Philippines. They came here, like grew up in like Coburg. So so my brother was born a year after um, they got married, and then my brother, and then I was born eight years after they got married. So I went to school in Coburg, number nineteen tram lines, like. It's always really weird now going back and being like, because now I don't live in the area, being like, it feels different but the same. And I just remember like always being like, I know where the good kebabs are. 
to the point where when I used to live overseas, people would know I had a kebab GPS for the good ones. They're like, Charlotte, where is the nearest kebab shop? So I feel I got that um, from growing up. And when I was learning Arabic, I found it easy to kind of work with because I was used to hearing friends speak in their parents' language and recognising the writing. And when I started writing and performing poetry, a lot of that was about cultural identity because it was a thing I felt I hadn't processed, Um, particularly growing up in a school where it was so multicultural that I was almost one of the least multicultural ones in my friend group because everyone just was. So the fact that, you know, I didn't speak um, a language growing up in English other than English fluently um, was kind of like, okay, cool. But all my friends kind of just knew those things. So what cultures were represented? Um, So there was, you know, there was Indian, Sri Lankan, Vietnamese, Lebanese, Maltese, Italian. I think it was when I got to university um, that I, I still went to, you know, it was around diverse communities, but I think I noticed my own identity more in the things that I was kind of not aware of. So the fact that you know, it would be assumed that I'd kind of be like an expert on things. And I'm like, I have no idea what that thing is. And I noticed it more. I actually work in a pretty multicultural workspace, but it's still got that half and half kind of divide. But there are certain things I'm just like, eh. I feel my experience growing up and not feeling super represented by my cultural experiences, but then seeing that other people had that same experience for also being South Asian has actually been a really nice kind of experience so like say for example if there were like Facebook groups people talk about the things where they've grown up with an Asian family or a South Asian family and there are small things like you know my mom drastically exaggerating what the time is being like it's midnight you need to go to bed but it's like 10 15 um, or just having like certain statues and stuff that I thought oh, that's just my parents but that's a cultural thing it's really heartwarming to kind of feel that I did have that sense of identity I didn't acknowledge. I went to Sri Lanka in 2015. I was with my brother um, at the time and we'd both never been and he had long curly ringlets like down to his waist and half of my hair was blue only on the right side so it wasn't like dip dyed it was like half blue. I did feel like outsiders but in kind of a good way, like when we'd gone to a festival and we decided to sit amongst the locals, people were like, we can tell you're Sri Lankan, but you don't look it based on how you're dressed. So it was nice to kind of have that experience and kind of live in that environment. So we have like an old uncle who kind of took us around. And then the next time I went was different, but in a, not a bad or good way. It was, I went with my auntie and someone saw me when we'd gone to visit them and they knew I was my dad's daughter just on my face. And I'm like, I don't look like my dad, but okay. Um, so that was really nice. And also because my auntie's a nun who wears the habit, we got to like get all this special treatment at the airport and skip lines. So that was nice. <laughs> and are those the sorts of stories that these hundred people were telling you? It was kind of a bit of both. So some would be like, you know, missing certain aspect of going back to the homeland or growing up there. Um, and a lot of people did have feelings of feeling disconnected from culture and wanting to kind of reconnect. But some also had really been immersed in those aspects that I hadn't been used to. So having both parents from, you know, one country and going to, you know, festivals, depending on 
how they represented. They might be going to temple or they might be, you know, celebrating certain parades or they might have, you know, gotten older and had more values of the culture. So one person, for example, had grown up pretty Sri Lankan and became more um, involved in the community once they started dating their partner who was also Sri Lankan. So they kind of had that connection there. But then there were some people who'd be like, you know, I'm, it wasn't until I actually was involved in other spaces that weren't so close to my cultural identity that I became stronger affiliated with that. And you've got music in this show. Yes, I've got some music in the show. So there's some piano, some saxophone, some glockenspiel. So, yeah, that was a new experience for me trying to put that together. So some of the poems that I actually have in the show are delivered a little bit differently to kind of go with that music. And that was a new process of me kind of composing that stuff. So you composed all the music? I composed most of the music. My partner did help with some of that. And I also have a musician who's done some of the lyric stuff of some of her music that she's produced from an album. But a lot of the stuff that's going with the backing of poems is stuff that I've kind of composed. Yeah, do you feel like you need to break into song? I could. I have thought of that, but I'm like, oh, I feel that's a new adventure that I want to like take the time to do properly. Once I was doing a collaboration with someone and they were a dancer performing to a poem I was doing and they actually asked, do you sing? Because you, the way you speak sometimes sounds like you're about to sing it. Well, you sound like you do sing. Yeah, that's true in a way. You have a very expressive way of performing. Do you know where that came from? I did used to do drama in high school, like up until like year 12 and a little bit in first year of uni. And I was a debating and public speaking coach. So I don't know whether the combination of having grown up around music, having a theatre background and debating public speaking, but I think I've just always had that, like even as a... Like a small kid, I always had that really proper voice and spoke like that, which like really stood out because everyone else at school didn't. And I'm like, they're like, where were you born in the sense that they didn't assume that was Sri Lankan or Filipino. People thought I'd like had allocution lessons. I'm like, no. Like in Britain? Or yeah, because I do have family who have had allocution lessons. I'm like, no. But I feel like I sound less proper than I used to, say like five, ten years ago. The uh, description of the show mentions a lot of uh, trigger warnings, Yeah, a lot of uh, harrowing details. How did you navigate that in interviewing people? Um, so what I kind of did when I was doing the interviews with people, I had a series of questions that people could answer or people kind of have this organic conversation with myself. And with the questions that were on the kind of the Google form that oh, I had when I was doing the interviews, I was like, here's the list of the questions for people and people could choose if they wanted to answer all of them or only answer one or two. So some people may have just done one or two questions because for whatever reason they didn't want to or they felt they had a lot to say about one thing or they would have been like, let's just have a chat about things. So it really depended on what someone wanted to talk about because I think one of the things that did come up in the interviews is that for some people growing up where you don't talk about these sort of things, so for a lot of people it was trying to break past that barrier that you've kind of had instilled to not talk about the things in great depth. Uh, how many people did you interview face-to-face? I can't remember. I feel like maybe at least a quarter. Okay. I remember trying to organise them because I was working full-time and I still am working full-time through this whole process, um, trying to organise things on weekends and, like, after work. And I think I had a fair few 
interviews with people. So a lot of those face-to-face ones were very organic conversations. Like I'm like, here's the list. But it was kind of just like, let's, you know, meet up and have a bit of a chat. I think one of the things that made a lot of people feel okay to have those conversations, it was like, you will be de-identified in this process, so it won't kind of come back to you. So I know one of the first people who actually did that actually asked that because they were really honest in their kind of responses to what things were kind of going on. And because they're one of the first people I could recognise, it was them, but I didn't like let them know that those what they had put in that Google form was theirs. And I'm like, no one other than me is potentially going to know that this is you. So how do you tell the stories during the show? So the way the stories are told is, so there's four actors on stage who are sitting kind of sharing those stories. We will actually have the, what's called the melanin monologues on stage. So it's like people are reading these stories and they'll kind of go through the stories themselves and say, for example, if a section is on diaspora, um, they'll kind of have different conversations, snippets from the interviews, sometimes conversations with each other. And then once those sections have kind of finished, I'll do a poem that complements the idea of that segment so it really kind of ties it all together. I was going to, you know, have people um, audition for the show and call out for people, but it kind of just was an easier process because people volunteered to want of help and people say, for example, someone like, you know, I don't want to be on stage, but I'm happy to help out with access kind of stuff on the night. So it kind of made the process really easy for me and I guess that's kind of what the South Asian community very much is it's a very kind of I'll help you out kind of process and then say one of the um, people was helping me navigate the interviews and everything they had a friend who had actually previously worked in Fringe and wanted to be a part of the show as well so that just made it cool I've got those four people organized and it made it so much easier for me and you have Auslan interpretation. Yes. So I have Auslan interpretation um, in the show. So one of the things I wanted to do is have it as accessible as possible. And I'd been working um, with the Fringe Navigate mentorship program. So about a dozen people get kind of chosen for that. And I was lucky enough to be chosen for that. And in our first kind of orientation meeting, um, Carly Finlays, who's the access and inclusion worker for Fringe, was actually there. And there was a kind of a access guide that I was reading you know in my spare time and I was looking at the things I wanted to have in it and I'd been learning Auslan very casually like over the past couple of years and I'm like I really want to have that in the show um, and given I'd kind of started the process pretty early I had the time to kind of make sure the interpreter was able to learn you know 60 minutes of interviews uh, whereas my previous concern is I wouldn't have the time to kind of do that. And open captioning? Open captioning. So one of the reasons I have open captioning is going through the kind of the access guide is kind of recognising that um, just having open captioning alone isn't enough for someone who uses Auslan as their unit of communication because the syntax is different or some people may be hard of hearing and want to have those things. So it's recognising those kind of barriers and also recognising the space and the room that I have been provided with has the facilities to do those things. So I'd want to make use of that um, to communicate those things. Does it add a cost to putting on a show? I think definitely with the Auslan interpreting, it does. The other aspects I haven't found that it was, but because um, being a part of the Navigate program, the kind of registration for Fringe was covered. So I kind of just put that money 
that I was going to pay for registration towards the interpreter. So it kind of just got redirected for me. And I think one of the things, whilst it does come with a cost, it comes with a, a benefit a benefit for people <laughs> being able to access it. Um, at the show, I'm having um, earplugs available if people are, you know, sensitive to kind of sounds. So I find sometimes if I'm quite exhausted or if my body's not working well or if I'm quite stressed, I can be in loud spaces, but I'm a bit more sensitive to those things and just knowing that there can be an option for something as simple as, you know, having earplugs or letting people know if there are going to be, you know, different lights. I think it's just letting people be prepared for what the experience will be. And I think it is just a matter of education. So one of the things that I wanted to do with this show is show some of those things to show how it can be kind of performed to kind of spread that to the wider artistic community. One of the things is because I'm used to that old pub culture and, you know, performing in bars and kind of stuff, when I actually saw the venue, I'd be performing and I'm like, this looks different than what I'm used to. So it was kind of a big kind of processing thing to be like, this space is different. And I think it's just like, say, for example, if a venue isn't accessible or it doesn't have, um, you know, facilities or, you know, it's a little bit hard to get to the bathroom if you're wheelchair accessible. Even if it's not accessible, putting that in, say, notes makes it more obvious to people so that we can at least kind of prepare how they might access that venue or whether it is something they can engage in. Have you got provision for people who, you know, maybe get overwhelmed by the content of the show? So some of the things that are discussed in the show can be quite confronting in the sense that someone may feel that's my experience, but also... There is a part of the show where I am talking about what happened in Sri Lanka during the bombings and people's experience of that, people grieving of that. So we will have a support person on the night and there'll also be some what I call a mental health first aid kit, so kind of sensory things to help kind of ground people. And I feel those things are kind of important. Even if someone doesn't use them, just knowing that they're there and knowing that it's trying to create a safe space for people as much as possible. Because I work in family violence and child welfare, um, I definitely have a lot of how can I kind of put provisions in place, both for the people I'm working with, but also working in quite an intense space. So I usually spend my mornings, sometimes whole days, reading family violence police reports and having to process them. So the things I need to do to be in those spaces and manage the fact that I'm, you know, engaging in art spaces as well, to making sure I'm looking after myself. So a lot of the tools that are there are things I use for myself, so... I will have like, say, I have like a squishy, bouncy ball kind of thing that I have if I'm just fidgety or if I'm feeling anxious. And those are the kind of things I think would be useful people to have. So using a lot of the skills that I've been fortunate enough to develop and be in spaces where they've been encouraged is really nice. Um, When I was actually in a queer artistic space, they had a system of if someone was leaving the room, they'd either put their thumb up or their thumb down. So they could have been going out to have a cigarette or they'd be going out because they wasn't well. And that kind of system is... Very so, thumb up is a cigarette. Thumb up is a cigarette, yep. <laughs> yeah. Thumb up's a cigarette and thumb down is I'm not doing okay. So it was kind of a very subtle way to kind of let those things become clear to other people and I thought that was a really nice concept to have. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, the voice of the community. 3CR Community Radio, giving the voice to the community since 1976. You are on 3CR Community Radio. The program is Spoken Word and I am Brendan Bonsack. And I'm chatting with Charlotte Serenio Raymond today. Should we do another poem? Yeah. Um, I might do a newer one. It's a very short one. 
Um, I wrote this piece when I was doing a series of poems uh, for Quippings, which is a disability arts um, program. And so this one kind of worked with how that beginning of the week kind of works. Red came into my head like a tsunami, so my brain built a drought in black. My body freezes up like ice. Storms built in green, eventually ice melts. Sometimes water is a lake or a quiet stream. Maybe it is a canoe through a river, sometimes droplets come in waterfalls and floods are made of blue. You don't have synesthesia, do you? I actually don't, which I think it has been asked before, but I think I just identify certain colours with feeling certain ways. And do you have a, a favourite colour? It's assumed that my favourite colour is pink because my car is pink, my couch is pink, my house is pink, but it's actually green. Um, and I think that's a lot to do with I like gardening. Um, I like that really bright emerald colour. And I remember years ago, I got this really gorgeous green emerald coat. It was like my favourite coat and I wore it everywhere. And I think it's those very vibrant kind of colours. One of the lines uh, in the description of your show is, uh, do your family know you're queer? Is that something that came up a lot in the people that you were talking to? I think in the kind of acknowledgements of queerness is some people would be like, one, I remember one particular interview is people would be like, my family know... Um, that have been in relationships, but they don't know um, the gender of the partner I've dated or it's something that some people have been able to talk about it, but some have felt that they couldn't have that conversation because of preconceived notions of what that would mean. And sometimes it is breaking down that barriers and for certain people acknowledging that it could be okay, but for others it might not be. So it is a very diverse kind of range of experiences. I actually assumed that my family wouldn't be okay with me being queer because I grew up very Catholic. Turns out, like, it was not an issue at all. Like, my siblings found out when I found out, which was years after my friends knew. Um, but it was kind of just another kind of thing. But so when I had gone overseas with my then girlfriend, I'm like, oh, I'm going with a friend. But I think I did have uncles who kind of put two and two together. So one birthday cake I had was like a rainbow unicorn cake. He's like, that's a very gay looking cake. I'm like, I'm just going to look down and pretend I didn't hear that. But yeah, it was super obvious. Like if you look back at even like photos of me when I was like eight, dressed as like a cowgirl for like New Year's, it's obvious. So you feel like people in the family knew before you did? Oh yeah, definitely in school as well. I remember people in like year 10 assuming I was bi. I'm like, I can see where that's coming from. And why you may think that, but no. And then years later, I'm like, you were definitely correct. And I had to like unravel that and recognize that in myself. I don't think it was an active resistance within myself. I just hadn't given myself the time to dissect my identity enough. And it wasn't until I was actually living overseas by myself that I kind of had that time to reflect and it was literally just a moment in the middle of my day it wasn't a big kind of revelation and I'm like oh that's a thing now and so I didn't really feel I had this great cathartic thing it was just like you know it could be like oh my shoes are like shiny today be like oh I'm super queer that's a thing and anyone who I told like friends of mine they were like this is not surprising at all I'm like okay cool 
That's great. Yeah, it was actually a pretty <laughs> decent experience. Yeah, compared to uh, a lot of other people's experiences. Yeah, no, I actually, when I first had the conversation with mum about it, mum had actually asked what my pronouns were, had mentioned that she'd gone to fundraisers for um, trans members of the Filipino community for years. And I'm just like, wait, I feel like you're the more active member of the community than I am. And she kind of had this really great grasp that I didn't recognise that existed within communities. And I think a lot of it is, again, those preconceived notions of what communities will be like. And that's one of the things the stories of this show kind of want to bring to the stage is that some communities are more liberal in terms of their kind of expression and acceptance because these identities and these cultures and these thinkings have existed for centuries and it's just kind of coming to a process of decolonizing a lot of those stories. It's definitely kind of been a great process. There'll be some things that, you know, some interviews that I kind of read, I'm like, did I write this? Did I interview myself? Or are some things I'm like, that is a really different way to understand your know, concept and to explain things in a different way to feel. And it was really kind of great to do these interviews and almost feel a part of this sense of community and feel closer to that. I feel I'm definitely a much more well-informed person about that. And I feel even just the fact that I've reached out to different communities and got, you know, some of those positive responses, it makes me feel as though less isolated in that kind of experience, particularly having grown up in a family where I didn't feel I had a great sense of cultural identity. It feels much different now that I'm older and I feel more connected to that. And this has certainly contributed to that process. When I wrote um, Chatbook with a lot of the poetry that is featured in this show, it was the Mullen Monologues at Charlotte's Web. So it was just kind of my experiences. Whereas this time I want to work with the same idea of sharing those stories, but making it more than just about my experience. So it's kind of an extension of that. Shall we go out with a poem? Yes. Uh, I might do another one based on colour. And given we've had a bit of a conversation about queerness, this one is about kind of that intersectionality of identity um, and identifying as a queer person of colour. So it's called Narnia. She asked me, Well, my colours don't shine as brightly as hers. Hers arched over valleys, cascaded across cities, mine speckled in fragments under UV lights in dimly lit bars. I told her that no two people could stand in the exact same spot and see the exact same spectrum of colour at any given time. You can never see all the colours and mine just don't shine so brightly. Between these yellows and caramels, I guess you'll only see pastels. But I wear a blue that fades to black. I wear a red that bleeds of sadness left behind in the wreckage of conquerors and colonizers, a vintage shade of blue. Passed down for my mother and her mother and her mother. The blue of languages lost and left unspoken. The red of a heart that yearns for a home that has rendered me homeless. She parades her colors. We store owls away like secrets swept under rugs, skeletons in closets so it's no secret that you'd find me living in Narnia. When I wore that technicolor coat, they saw that as biblical, not quite political, the lines of my bisexuality broken in their reality. 
they saw this as an ode to Joseph. My mother wears Polaroid sunglasses, she cannot see my queer. Call it a moon rose. Call it specks of pastels under UV lights laced with my mother's yellow and my father's caramel. Call it our shades of blue arched into a frown. Call it what comes after rain. Call it what's arched behind fur coats and A-line skirts. Call it colours in closets. Your work centres around colonisation. Can you remember the point where you started to realise, oh, I live in a very colonial society? It probably wouldn't have been until university, but I know there were always snippets of me kind of recognise that, say, even when I was in prep um, or when I was doing an assignment in Year 9 about, you know, Australian history, and I'm like, this feels like a very whitewashed kind of way they're presenting it. So I think, but I really took that moment when I was in university because I'd, um, before becoming a social worker, I'd studied international relations and kind of being like, there are a few things in here that are worth kind of processing. But it wasn't until I, um, maybe about 20, that I kind of tried to decolonize that process within myself. So there were certain things, you know, when I was dating people earlier on in my early teens, I mean, some late teens kind of being like, I would have let those slide, whereas now I'm very kind of upfront about those things, maybe problematic or recognising microaggressions, um, because I think I had this overarching idea of like colonisation was this big, grand kind of concept from the past or, you know, in policy and everything, but the ramifications of that bleed through so much so, and I think it was just unravelling that and noticing that a lot more. For me, you know, even though I come from a know a migrant background realizing that me as a settler in this kind of country is I'm essentially still benefiting from colonization by being able to live here by being able to exist here by being able to go to you know tertiary education here and recognizing that you can be both um, privileged and oppressed within that kind of space and kind of I think for me it was very important to acknowledge that in my own existence. What are some of the everyday decolonization processes that you have? I think even say for example if I'm in the workplace and someone says something that is microaggressive um, or is you know plays into those stereotypes I will kind of call them out in a very kind of acknowledging that it may be a blind spot in their kind of thinking and recognizing what's a more appropriate way to kind of talk about those things and I think for me is recognizing when I'm not always the best person to be the forefront voice. So giving other people the space to kind of have their time and knowing when to kind of step back from situations is kind of playing into that role. And I think that's one of the things I wanted to do with this show. Um, another way I kind of, you know, work with those everyday decolonizations is the fact that I now use my mum's maiden name in a lot of my work. So in Filipino culture, traditionally, your mother's maiden name is your middle name. And I hadn't kind of grown up with that and I recognise how much um, for my mum growing up as um, coming to Australia as a migrant without family and me wanting to hold on to that connection was something I felt really important to my kind of process. The actors in your show, what backgrounds are they from? So three of the actors are Sri Lankan and one of them is from India and has come to study as a student. So again, we get those kind of multitude of perspectives, you know, if someone from one part of Sri Lanka may have a different perspective 
from another part, some come from, you say, a Buddhist religious background, some were raised what's called Burger Sri Lankan, which they have European influence in that, so they come with a Catholic upbringing, and some are, have a kind of mixture of both, or some have gone to temple kind of thing. So it's kind of getting that multitude, even though we're all from the same you know, subcontinent, there's so many different stories. You know, for other people in the show, they, I feel they kind of were grown up with a lot more of that experience more. So again, it helps me really inform um, this, the story, knowing that I'm not always going to be the expert on the stories I'm presenting. And I have a great deal of experience, but I want to um, consolidate that with other voices and other people kind of giving those perspectives. Well, thank you very much for coming along today. You're welcome. Best of luck with the show. Thank you. Charlotte's show, The Malinan Monologues, is on tomorrow night, 13th of September at 6.30pm at Trades Hall ETU Ballroom. Please visit www.melbournefringe.com.au for ticketing and accessibility details. The Fringe has a solid lineup of spoken word events this year, and as well as the official Fringe website, you can find them all on www.melbournespokenword.com. 3CR Spoken Word is on every week at 9am on Thursdays, so please tune in on 855am or stream from 3cr.org.au. And please drop by our website, 3cr.org.au slash spoken-word to get lost among our podcasts going back through years of poetry goodness. I've been Brendan Bonsack. Thank you for listening.